and I was with him. We were on vacation going to Colorado to go camping. And man, it almost always makes me cry now. I was high. I was high when my granddad died, man. Who does that? So when you cook meth, you have all the meth you need and, and your addiction just goes stronger and stronger and stronger. And it was the, the beginning of, of a 22 count, 18 man indictment come, that was handed down from the DEA. And uh, so I went home to be with my family and pout because I was going to prison and I'm not the guy that goes to prison. I can't go to prison. I'm the guy that made straight A's and I, I don't go to prison. And I was like, mom, can you give me a ride to Texarkana on Monday? She's like, well, sure, baby. What, what do you got to do? I was like, I, I got to go turn myself into prison. She's like, quit kidding around. What do you need? I'm like, I'm going to prison. Have you ever made any bad choices in your life? And I'm not talking about picking the wrong item from a menu at a restaurant. I'm talking about choices that hurt you physically emotionally, and maybe even change the course of your life forever. Maybe these choices not only hurt you, but those around you, maybe even those that you love. Have you ever had to face the consequences of these choices, and now you feel like there is no hope for a positive future? Are you walking down a path that seems inevitable, unchangeable? Maybe this dark path seems like a train to nowhere, Maybe it feels like it's your destiny. Can God take these bad choices and use them for good? What does that look like? How can God take so much bad in my life and turn it around? These are the questions that I want to ask our guest today as he shares his life change story with us. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. I've never actually met our guest in person, and today he is zooming in all the way from Texas. He has an amazing story to share with us, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So, hey, new friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Well, I thank you for the opportunity to, to, to share my story because I hope that it, it, it helps somebody. You know, the Word of God in Revelation chapter 12 says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and then we love not our life unto death. So if my testimony will encourage somebody, I'm so tickled to be here. Uh, most people call me Pastor Dan. My official name is Dan Williams. Uh, and I live, nobody on this podcast ever, ever, ever will know where I'm at. I'm in Ringgold, Texas. And the town is so big that we have actually 65 water meters. We have no no traffic signals. We have no gas station, no grocery store. So I'm about an hour and a half northwest of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and maybe 30 minutes east of Wichita Falls, where our friend uh, John Paul resides. So Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Where were you born and where were you raised? And tell us a little bit about your family of origin. Well, I was born January 9th, 1959. That's a long time ago for your listeners. You'll have to do the math. I'm, I'm old. But I was born on the south side of Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I was born to good parents. I don't have the story of fatherlessness. Uh, it was a good family. Uh, you know, it had their problem. It wasn't a Christian family. The, the funny part of that is my mother claimed to be Baptist and my dad claimed to be Church of Christ. And obviously those two can't go to church together. And so we didn't. And so I had never uh, heard the gospel as a young man. Uh, and in fact, not until I was uh, 
30 years old was the first time I actually heard the gospel. So, but we had, we had a good family. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, dad was, uh, one of those old school dads, you know, he was pretty hard. He was hardcore. He didn't play, you know, you, dad, dad would straighten you out pretty quick. So you had to be clever to pull off your shenanigans with dad because, you know, he was, uh, he was, a, he was a, he was a hard taskmaster. What were you like in school? Were you a rule follower or were you a little bit of a rebel? Were you quiet or were you outspoken? Well, I've always been outspoken, if you couldn't have guessed that. But up until I was maybe 16, I guess, there used to be a campaign on TV, and you may remember this, that it had the egg frying in the skillet and said, this is your brain on drugs. Well, I, it was the war on drugs, and I bought into it. And uh, I was a straight-A student. I, I'll be honest with you, I never carried a book home, ever. I never did homework. I was on the honor roll. I did all that. I was a really great kid. And, uh, and then at about 16, I'm, I met a little girl and she was cute and you know how little boys want to be with little cute girls. And she actually had a, a, a joint of marijuana and she's like, you want to smoke this? And my brain is just like, I don't want my brain to be that egg in the frying pan, you know, but she's so cute. So you, you can guess with my, a little bit more of my story that which way I went on that. And so that kind of started down a, a path, you know? And, and there's obviously a lot more that that builds into the addiction, but that I can pinpoint that as as a start. And and I and I stayed uh, good with scholastically. I, I went to college, but after two years, they wrote a letter to my parents and said, "Please do not let this student come back to our institute of higher learning because that was the first time away from home." And I discovered a lot of things when I was in college, and none of them none of them were academic. So. So whenever you were in high school, what would you say your biggest struggle was? I mean, was it at home? Was it at school? Was it relationships? What would you what would you classify if you if I say give me your hardest struggle during that time period? Just watching two people live together that was really not in love. Dad was the type where he was so unhappy that you really had to walk on eggshells because you could set his fuse off very, very easily. So what did you do after high school? You said you went to college. Uh, so did you go to college there in Texas or where'd you go? I went, it's, they've changed the name. It was back when I went, it was North Texas State University. It's in Denton, Texas. Now it's called uh, UNT, they call it now. But I, I injured myself my freshman year of football. And so I didn't play football any longer. I became the trainer, the athletic trainer. And that was interesting to me. And at that time, uh, the athletic trainer for the Dallas Cowboys had came from through North Texas State University. And I was like, well, that's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to go there and and I'll get my degree and I'll be the trainer for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, you know, why not? Everything else has gone my way. So we'll just we'll just go that route. And uh, so we went there. But like I said, some people are not prepared to be away from home and. And I, I guess I was not, even though I was only 30, 45 minutes away, but I lived there on campus. I was on a work study program. So in other words, part of my uh, housing and part of my cost was paid for by me working as an athletic trainer in college. And it was a great time, but it was when I wasn't doing that was when we were drinking and getting high and, and uh, you know, so, uh, my first experience with like acid and, and stuff like that. So, But you said you didn't finish college so you went a couple years no, or what happened i went i went two years uh once again the academic part of it was fine but i was just 
messing around at night so much, I wouldn't go to class and there was nobody there to make me go to class. And, and so I remember my last semester there, I remember like, you know what? I don't know what my schedule is. If I wanted to get up and go to class, I don't think I would know where to go. So did so you go it. back home after college? I mean, you know, you didn't graduate and you didn't nope. like school being away. Where did you go after that? Went home and my dad said, uh, well, you screwed that up. Get a job. Uh, got old enough to get a commercial license and I started driving a truck and uh, at 21, started driving the truck and hauling, actually hauling gasoline in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, delivering to gas stations by, by via an 18-wheeler. Uh, I went to work for another company. My dad also worked there. We were pulling a flatbed trailer. And that's when uh, I got introduced to methamphetamine. And uh, yeah, I really fell in love with that drug. I fell in love with that drug. And it, 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 it took me down a path that, that, had a, that had a crash on it, you know. So let me ask you this question. Uh, you said that you, you know, didn't really meet God until later in your life. So what did you believe? Uh, did you have any faith at all? Was there any God moments that you look back and go, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of thought about that, or was it you just totally oblivious to, to religion and God altogether? Just totally oblivious. I guess if somebody had asked me, I would have probably certainly said, I believe in God, but it was such a, that'd be a, certainly a generic statement with no relation or nothing to back it up just because back in those days, everybody believed in God, or at least they said they did. But I, I had no, I had no recognition of him, no relationship. No, I wasn't, I wouldn't have said I was agnostic. Or I wouldn't have said that I was an atheist. I just, it was just me. Yeah. It was just me. So you're at the truck stop, you do meth for the first time. So I've mm -hmm. heard, and, and I've never done meth, but I've heard that that once you take it, that you're hooked. You're hooked from the get-go. So would you say that was your experience, or was it a process? Well, I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. And so we're, we're going down the interstate and talking on the CB radio to the guy that had it. I'm like, man— where did you come across this? This is fantastic. And he said, well, actually that's my wife's gig. She's, she's the one that, that sells that. So I got introduced to her and, uh, and started doing the, and started doing it and, and smaller quantities, but constantly. And, uh, the, the thing about uh, a drug like that is it will drain you financially. And so at some point in time, you're going to, have to decide how you're going to pay for your habit, whether you're going to kick in doors and rob people. Me being uh, maybe a little bit more of a higher IQ guy, I learned, I got introduced to a guy and learned how to cook it. So when you cook meth, you have all the meth you need and, and your addiction just goes stronger and stronger and stronger. And that, that relationship there, I thought it was so neat that I was, working for the guy and, and doing the stuff. And in reality, it was the, the beginning of, of a 22 count 18 man indictment come that was handed down from the DEA. So at what age did you get married? So you're out, you, you went two years of college or whatever you went out and you got, it was driving trucks and then you got onto meth and then you got to cooking meth. At some point you got married and had kids. When did that happen? Prior to that, between college and getting hooked on dr drugs, I, when I met my first wife, it was through truck driving. I was delivering 
gas locally and she worked at a car wash that I was delivering gas to. Started dating, we got married and and had two children. I didn't I didn't drink, I didn't do any drugs, I because she didn't, so I didn't. I I was clean as a whistle. But then I thought that through my life it always worked like it's supposed to that you get married and it's happily ever after. And I was once again driving a truck and I had called my now ex and I'm leaving to go to Austin and she's like, Oh, well, I'm going to go with the girls and, and have a cocktail at this uh, holiday inn. I was like, cool. And uh, I was just going to surprise her. I pulled my 18 wheeler over on the side, on the, on the, on the road there where she was, I knew where she was. And I walked in there and she wasn't with her girls. She was with another man kissing on him and hugged up and, I went a little crazy and that really did kind of kick things off. That was the, the beginning of the end. Along about that same time, my ex-wife, I caught her and that crashed. And then my grandfather died and I was with him. We were on vacation going to Colorado to go camping. And man, it almost always makes me cry. Now I was high. I was high when my granddad died, man, who does that? But it just that right there started the spiral that led to the more dope, to the cooking of the dope and to going to the prisons. That's what I really now looking back attribute to my downfall was my first wife, you know, her infidelity and that and my granddad dying. And it just it just it just sent me down into a spiral and, and it was just out of control. So were you a truck driver still, or did you finally just say, you know what, I don't need to do that anymore. I can sell this. I mean, what? Uh, tell me about the events that led you led you to your incarceration. Well, I was driving a truck, and I had by, and I was back hauling locally, delivering gasoline. So you have to show up at eight o'clock in the morning, eight to five kind of deal. Uh, but I was up all night, and then if I fall asleep. Uh, I wouldn't get up in time to go to work. And so it was around these holidays and uh, a buddy said, they're going to fire you as soon as the holidays are over. In other words, they're going to use you to get through the holidays and then they're going to terminate you. And I was like, no, I don't think they're going to do that. I'll just terminate myself. So I did. And I was working on motorcycles. I'd been around motorcycles my whole life. My dad was the president of a motorcycle club in Fort Worth. So I was raised on motorcycles. And so that's what I was doing. I was working on bikes in my garage uh, and so when I got introduced to the gentleman that, that, that we started manufacturing, uh, he, uh, he had a company that was a front for drug sales and he wanted me to run a motorcycle, quote unquote, motorcycle shop. So basically we did work on bikes, but it was mostly a front for, for a drug organization. So that was our deal. And we did quite successfully. We didn't sell like people knocking on the door coming in. We didn't do that. We were selling to truck drivers, large quantities in different towns. I mean, it was a fairly safe gig if there is one. And then the next thing I know, this man is hooked on cocaine and he's sleeping with another woman and still married to his wife and they're not happy. Well, somebody got, somebody got busted in Amarillo, Texas, and he said everything he knew so the DEA got involved. Uh, they set up wiretaps. They did surveillance. Uh, the man that I worked for, uh, his wife was coming back and they had a lady with a wire in the vehicle with them. They were driving probably two hours. And so she just 
felt free to tell this lady everything she knew. The police were in a treehouse across the street from the motorcycle shop uh, doing surveillance. And so I would look out the window. I was like, man, it looks like somebody's in that treehouse. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's the drugs talking. There is no, there is no way there was nobody in that treehouse. But, but it was. They were, they were packed in there for some weeks, just taking video footage. And at one point in time, uh, they arrested out of 18 people. They arrested 17. I was the only one who wasn't arrested because I was running up and down the road on my Harley with my gun in my boot, dope in one pocket, money in the other. I was, I was making delivery. And uh, so they, I get home and my phone rings, you know, back then we had phones on the wall, uh, you're not, not in our pocket. And, uh, and so I get a phone call and they're calling me from Johnson County Correctional Center and they're all locked up. And so the question they asked me is, why are we all locked up and you're not? The insinuation being, I must be the one that got them locked up. My answer was, if you're in jail on a recorded line, why are you calling my house? So I took my wife and we left town. We went out in the country for a while to kind of think this thing through. And, uh, you know, it was always an option to run, go to Mexico. But I had two kids through my first wife. And I just couldn't do that. My heart wouldn't let me do that to my children. So I called a lawyer and the lawyer suggested, he said, well, at this time point in time, if I was you, I would go to the federal marshal's office, downtown Fort Worth, take the elevator up to their office and turn yourself in. And maybe they'll let you out on a personal recognizance bond. I was like, okay, spent years running from the law, but now I'm going to drive to Fort Worth and turn myself in, which I did. And I walked in this little room and the lady behind the glass said, can I help you? And I said, yes, ma'am. I believe you might have a, uh, a warrant for me. And so she had a little card file, you know, a little index card. So she's going through there looking and, and she looked through it twice and she said, no, sir, I don't see anything on you. And I was like, well, ain't that nice. And so I turned around to leave. And that's when the uh, U.S. Marshal put his hands on my shoulder. And he said, he said, sir, we don't have a card on you. We have a file. Here's your file folder. And so uh, they did. They did, they locked me up and put me before a judge. And they did. They let me out on a per personal recognizance bond. And uh, so I went home to be with my family and pout because I was going to prison and I'm not the guy that goes to prison. I can't go to prison. I'm the guy that made straight A's and I, I don't go to prison. And then the really weird part of this story is when you're out on personal recognizance, you report your, you self report to prison. So I had to get my dear old mother <laughs> who didn't know anything about any of this, none of it. And I was like, mom, can you give me a ride to Texarkana on Monday? She's like, well, sure, baby. What what do you got to do? I was like, I, I got to go turn myself into prison. She's like, quit kidding around. What do you need? I'm like, I'm going to prison and I need you to deliver. So my mother actually delivered me to the doorstep of the prison. So, How old were your kids whenever you entered prison? I think my son was about two. And so that made my daughter four. Okay. So two and four. So you go into prison. What was it like? Uh, first, uh, so you, your mom took you to prison, you go in there, they get, take all your personal stuff, give you the pajamas and you're in prison. So was it a federal prison or a, uh, yeah. okay. So it yeah. was a federal prison. So how long were you sentenced and how long did you actually serve? I did a year and a half in the prison and then I did six months in the halfway house. And then I was on probation, I think for a year. So let's talk about prison. Did you meet God in prison? 
Absolutely. A little uh, spirit-filled Pentecostal preacher. He was a short in stature, but high on energy. He would get to preaching and he would get to bouncing and jumping up and down. I, I often say he, he, was, he could jump over the pews, you know. It was just him and his wife, and they were faithful and and uh, heard the and heard the gospel for the first time, and it made absolute sense to me. If I'm wearing this suit of clothes they gave me, uh, when you, somebody tells you you're a sinner, I'm like, well, I'm probably going to have to agree with you based on my location. And they tell you you need a savior, and I'm like, well, I need something because this ain't working, you know. And th so the gospel just made made sense to me, and that started me uh, down down my walk. In prison is is probably more segregated than the church is. We all know that 11 to 12 on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. But prison is that way too. Whites with whites, Hispanics with Hispanics, blacks with black. That was the uh, the first miracle that happened is a black man walked into my cell and invited me to church. And I thought, well, ain't that something? Maybe I ought to consider going. You know, after I considered it, how weird it was that a black man came in my cell and invited me, I was like, well, maybe I should. Uh, and I, I really don't think that because when, that that preacher, when he came in there, he came in there with hellfire and brimstone. He was wound up. I don't not sure how many sermons I sat under before I gave my heart to Jesus. I wasn't a hard case. I didn't sit there and go, no, no, no. To me, in my mind now, I think the first time I heard it, I was like, yep, that right there is what I need, you know. So tell me, they, did they have a baptistry in uh, prison or did you just uh, they get— had a, they had a wonderful laundry cart, and they would fill it with water, cold water, I might add. And when they would, uh, you know, as we say when we baptize somebody, baptized in the likeness of Christ, resurrected to walk in the newness of life. When my head was pushed down, my feet come out the other end, and it's just a hilarious picture. And then when they pull me back up, you know, my feet went back down and my head come out, and, and there I was, uh, baptized in the name of Jesus. There was a life-changing moment in prison. Now the, the Pentecostal preacher and the, and the, and the uh, gospel and all that uh, was a huge impact on my life. But I asked my current wife, Deb, I said, would you please bring the kids up here? Because I want to tell them I love them and that, and that I care for them. And, and she did. And we had a great visit and my daughter had her little, she was like maybe four or five. She had her little Easter dress on and my little boy was cute. And my wife had cooked a big, and it was just great. We visited, and and it was so good. And then my wife had to go back home and take the kids, or Deb. She wasn't my wife at the time, but she was taking my kids back to their mother. That was another thing. While I'm in prison, my, my now current wife was not my wife then, but she was still watching my kids every other weekend. That's her heart. But when she took those children, Eric, they were crying. They were broken and crying over me. And I thought, man, that is a sorry excuse of a man that would cause children that much grief over just being knucklehead or whatever word you want to use. It broke me, Eric. It broke me. It, it makes me tear up now to know that I did that to my children. Our children deserve the very best version of us we can come up with with the help of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't have that. They had trash of a dad. I thought I was so clever that my children would never know that I was high or doing drugs or pornography. Any of the things that we do as an addiction, I thought I was so clever. I hid it from them. 
I was so wrong. As we became adults, they're like, Dad, of course we knew. An interesting part of the story is I had two children, a boy and a girl. The My son uh, saw my train wreck of a life and said, I'm good on all that. I don't need to do drugs and go to jail. My daughter said, hold my beer <laughs> and watch me go. And and she tried her dead level best to wreck her life in and out of rehab, in and out of jail, police cars, three uh, boys out of three different baby daddies, all the stuff. And uh, the hardest thing I ever did in my life was go to God and ask, what do you want me to do with this girl? And he said, I want you to love her unconditionally. And I thought, that's not what my flesh wants to do at all. It wants to go retrieve her before she crashes and wrecks everything. And every time I'd go to my prayer closet, God would say, love her unconditionally. Well, my wife, my daughter now is an incredible evangelist. She goes with me in the prisons. I've seen 500 men crying under her anointing. And and she's amazing. But we were standing on a platform at a men's encounter event. So she spoke and I was weeping because she said, look, my dad set the bar so low that I had three sons that are wonderful, but through three different baby daddies in and out of jail, in and out of rehab, my dad didn't set the bar very high. And she said, but one of the things that happened was when I rec was wrecking my life, she said, everybody dropped me, but one man. And she said, my dad never dropped me and he loved me unconditionally. And I thought, well, go big Jesus, because that was not what I wanted to do. But that's what God knew needed to happen. And she said, got, dad got out of prison and he decided to let the Holy Spirit start working on him. And unbeknownst to dad, we're watching. Dad's just trying to do better. And I'm watching. And she said, now my dad has set the bar so high that I have the husband that I have, and I've got three sons that know how to treat a lady. And so that's a word of encouragement. Guys, it's never too late. Man, God is just a restorer. And But my point is, it's never too late to yeah. let God fix you. And so I just encourage everybody, man, it's never too late. It doesn't matter how messed up your life was. You think your life is messed up? Get a hold of me. We'll get a list out, and we'll see who screwed up the worst, okay? It doesn't matter. that Jesus knows. We're crazy, insane if we think we're hiding anything. The those things that we have in the dark that 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 we don't want Eric to know and we don't want our mother to know, God knows. And he yet loves us anyway. And if we'll just submit ourselves to him, it is I thought my life was crazy when I was selling dope, riding bikes and doing all that. I thought my life was what the young people say now, off the chain. It can't compare to what the adventure God has put me on once I just surrendered to him and said, you know what? I can't do this, God. I cannot. I, I, I made a train wreck out of my life. Here I am. What's left of me? Have your way. Amen. Greatest decision I ever made in my life. Amen. By far. So tell me about you got out of prison. I mean, that had to be a joyous day. You had Jesus in your heart. Did you, was there, I mean, was it a... Was it a light and day difference? So you came out of prison and you got Jesus and you start living with him or was it a slow process or what, how was it for you? Well, when you get out of prison, I was released to a halfway house okay. and to get a weekend pass to see mama, you got to have a job. Well, in case any of your listeners don't know, sometimes it's hard to get a job when you're an ex-convict. 
So my brother-in-law at the time, uh, actually, he's still my brother-in-law, sorry. Uh, he was taking me around for job interviews and everybody was the same. Thank you. We, we, you know, but no. And a guy came in the halfway house and he said, Hey, uh, in Ulysses, there's a sheet metal workers association and they're hiring and they don't care if you have a record. So I called my brother-in-law. He took me there. They signed all the paperwork and said, okay, you're in. I'm like, well, hallelujah. What do y'all do? And they said, Oh, don't worry about it. We'll show, they'll show you on the job. And, Here's me and my infinite wisdom. I said, I'll not do any hard drugs anymore. I called my motorcycle buddies up, my biker buddies, and said, come over here and get me stoned. So they came to my house, and I smoked the marijuana, and I got high. The next day, I was at work. I was on top of a 10-foot ladder, and I got knocked off of it. And I had to, and I landed, and when I did, my knee swole up the size of a cantaloupe or whatever. So me and God had a meeting and I said, okay, I understand now. I, 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 I got you. I hear you loud and clear. None of that is for me. I can't. I have a, a personality that easily lends itself to going all in. And so a little is not good for me because a little leads to a lot. I actually ended up getting my degree. I think I was 45 with the Sheet Metal Workers Association. And uh, so I finally did get my degree. It's useless. As an ex-convict, you can't use a degree in education anywhere. But so and so if we move towards uh, out of the halfway house, got this job, I started this apprenticeship program in the sheet metal workers. And I did four years of that. Uh, I excelled there. I, I graduated in 95. They, in 95, they brought me back to teach. So I ran that school for 30 years and was able to minister to literally thousands of young men. And, and I didn't necessarily agree they were union. I didn't agree with their politics. I didn't agree with their religion. But I agreed with being able to, to pour into thousands of young lives. And so that was a great, great, great experience for me. So, Dan, I know that you are in ministry now because earlier you talked about you and your daughter going into prisons to speak. How did you receive your call to ministry? So I took up the game of golf with a guy who's now gone to be with the Lord. And one Saturday, I was like, where are we playing golf tomorrow? And he said, I'm not playing golf tomorrow. I'm going to church. And, you know, the aha moments when the angel choir is singing and the bright light comes down. And I was like, ooh, you show right. I said, you think that uh, that your church would let me in? He's like, they're letting me in, so they'll probably let you in. And, and that's the church that I, I surrendered to the Lord in ministry and got ordained in. During my ordination, I asked my wife when I surrendered to the ministry, I said, Deb, what do you think about that decision I just made since I didn't necessarily ask you? And she's like, I'll be honest. She said, I don't know how God will humble you enough to be a minister. And I thought, well, thanks for your honesty. But she was right. And so when you get ordained, it's a big thing. And you wear your suit. Well, I was not too long out of prison. I didn't have a suit. So I went and bought a suit and they tailor it, you know, they make it fit you how they do. And so we, it was a crazy thing with the ordination. Uh, there was a foot wash and there was all the things. And, and towards the end, I knelt with my back to the congregation as the elders of the church laid hands on me. When I knelt, unbeknownst to me, the rear end of my brand new suit, yeah, split wide open so I mooned the whole church 
the whole time they're praying for me and nobody bothered to tell the brother anything. And after I come up, I was like, why is this so, why is this so funny to everybody? And my wife said, I have no doubt that God is able to humble you no matter what. And I got onto my sister who was there. I was like, you could have told your brother that he was shining the Hoke congregation. She's like, no, I was too busy laughing. So, you know, God's got jokes. We say God's got jokes. And so that was my ordination right there. So, Dan, what are you doing now? How is God using you and, uh, you know, uh, in other people's lives? And is Jesus still king of your life? I I don't speak Spanish fluently, but I speak enough to get in trouble. I say, now, yo, yo soy un hijo del rey. I'm the son of a king. That's my identity. I find my identity in the word of God. Our feelings want to agree with I'm an ex-convict. I'm an ex-drug addict. I wrecked my family. My feelings will say, yep, you're surely correct. But whose opinion is better? Mine and my feelings or what God says about me. God says that in his son, I'm, he is well pleased. He said that him who knew no sin became sin, that I might be the righteousness of God. My feelings never align with the fact that I am the righteousness of God. That's who I am. That's who I'm called to be. And that's who Jesus died on Calvary to make me that. Not because of who I am or or what I can do or my capabilities or my skills or talent, but because of who he is. My adventure post-prison has just been amazing. It's been amazing. I've pastored several churches. I started a church. Uh, I went through two years of training as a certified life coach. Uh, a lot of people say, well, why won't you give your heart to, to God? And they're like, well, I don't know what God would ask me to do. I was like, uh, he might ask you to go to Africa. That's cool. Come go with me. I'll show you what it's all about because I've been many, many times. We we have an orphanage over there uh, and, and we got 62 little kids over there. When I was just there in June, they called me Poppy. They gave me a tribal name. They, they said, we're going to honor you and we're going to call you Garmonde. And I was like, I don't, what does that mean? Like fat ball guy with whiskers. And they're like, no, it means we waited a really long time for you. And then you got here. That makes me go back into prisons. We also go, some of your uh, listeners may be familiar with the one percenter motorcycle world, the outlaw gangs. We go in their clubhouses. We pray for them. The very first time I walked in the one, I was like, here we go. We're going to see everybody take your lid off and bow your head. We're going to the Lord in prayer. And I thought, I'm either fixing it. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And you know what? They all bowed their head and we prayed to God. That's just how big my God is. I am nobody. I am nobody. But in him, whoo, I am a force to be reckoned with. I promise you. Amen, brother. Well, if so, you've got one message, one message that you can give to the listeners, what would it be? I've taught men for 30 some odd years and I can teach you all kind of theological principles and I can teach you the word and the Greek and the Hebrew. I can do all those things. But the most important thing I could ever teach any young man is when Jesus, I'm going to cry. When Jesus calls you, just say yes. Start your adventure with God and see what he called you to be. Your family deserves it. Your children deserve it. Your wife deserves the best version of you possible. And it's not through self-help. It's through allowing God to change you and just say yes. Just say yes, guys. Dan, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. 
Hey, if you are listening today and you think there is no way God could ever turn your life around, maybe you've made some bad choices or maybe you are walking through a dark valley and the enemy has you thinking there is no hope. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And our God wants to love you, heal you, and change the direction of your life. But as Dan said so passionately, you have to say yes. Just say yes, and he will come into your life and change it for the good. However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.